the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Wanted to start with a couple of important things. The first one is this. Uh, Today, we talked a couple weeks ago about the March for Life. Uh, in Washington, D.C. That took place today, uh, the March for Life. And then this is uh, all of January, Aubrey, is Sanctity of Life Month. I know as pastors, this is coming up this weekend, is commonly known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. Sunday. Uh, and, you know, you've got kind of abortion is on the on the front burner right now, not just because of those things, but because of, you know, the Supreme Court cases that are yes. coming. Uh, some pro-life, some anti-abortion activists are even, you know, thinking, this could be the last anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Like that's why it lands on this weekend. It's the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Mm, I don't think I ever realized that, Brian. That's that's interesting. Yep, and that's why they are saying this could be the last anniversary of it, and uh, praying for a culture of life. And so all of that, Aubrey, you and I have talked a lot about abortion, but it is, I think, important for us to take uh, as a church, as a culture, as people who care about this topic. It is important to. Go uh, uh, memorialize it, if you will, in a specific weekend to go, okay, we're going to shine a spotlight yeah. on, on the issue of abortion right now. Uh, we're going to march. We're going to highlight. We're going to pray. Yeah. And uh, really, Aubrey, I think we are pretty unapologetic of saying we're praying that uh, that that major changes continue to happen in our country. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a weekend like this is important or a month like this is important because it can be easy, even as Christians, to forget um, the the value of life, the sanctity of life, and kind of forget that like abortion is even an issue. Just right. because you go about your day, it's not that you don't care, you're not passionate about it, but you know, other issues of life kind of take hold. And so I think to just have an intentional time to pause, to pray, to protest, to write your leaders, to get involved in organizations like CareNet, you can go to Care. Um, dash net.org, other organizations that are pro-life pre-born. We've, we've had them on the mm-hmm. show before. Mm-hmm. And just remember, you know, what it means to God that we stand for those who can't stand for themselves and the most vulnerable in our society being unborn children. And that we do that because we believe that, you know, every human being, including little unborn children, have been created with image of God and therefore have value. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so uh, I I think, like you said, we could get caught up in a lot of issues, rightfully so. There are a lot of things to worry about. There are a lot of things to try to highlight. There are a lot of things that we need to work on as a culture and as a society, but that doesn't mean that the abortion issue takes a back seat. Instead, uh, I guess I'll put it this way. uh, It's not uh, the only issue, but that doesn't mean it's not an issue. It's a huge issue. And uh, I always like how you frame it. You, you tend to say, uh, you know what? We as Christians are called to um, advocate and love and stand up for the most vulnerable, the least of these. Uh, and, and if you start to make a list of who would be in the quote unquote least of these in our culture, uh, 
there there there's a lot of different categories to that but one of them will be the unborn baby uh right. especially with the with the number of abortions uh going on and yes we we want to be pro life from womb to tomb and we want to look at all of the issues that uh keep that cause abortions that cause poverty that cause other things but we also want to see abortion stop and so yes. this becomes a time to, uh, to talk about that, especially on this anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And it also becomes a time to talk about adoption and the different things. So, um, Aubrey, what would you say to people who maybe are like, oh, I, I know this is a big deal. I don't know what I think. Maybe mm -hmm. as we close up this little discussion about abortion, why should we care so much? Yeah, I think it's that's really fair. I, I feel like there's a lot of people in this day and age and even a lot of Christians that just aren't sure what they think because it's been so politicized mm -hmm. that the issue has. And because I think, you know, something you and I have said that the church hasn't done a great job of caring for the women or the single moms or the, you know, the abortion, you know, minded or abortion um <clears throat> women thinking about abortion. Right. And so we want to be clear, and you just said this, so I'm just repeating what you said, but that we need to care about people from womb to tomb, and we especially need to get better about caring for women, period. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. under that umbrella, the reason that we care about this issue is just what we talked about. Like the Bible's very clear that before the foundations of the earth, before we were even thought of by our moms and our dads, God had already planned for us to be born. Like God knew us before we were in our mother's wombs. And so if you can think about that, I know that's kind of a, a mind blowing thing to think about, but God has his fingerprints on every single human being and every single life. And because of that, that baby, that unborn child has innate value, innate dignity, and the innate right to live. Mm -hmm. And and again, because we are called to care for the least of these, the unborn child is the most vulnerable, like we said, in our society. And so there is just no greater call than to care for um, the most vulnerable in the world. And that does mean like the church has to get better at things like adoption, at coming besides mo moms, at offering other resources. You can't just be pro-life and not be like pro-baby, right? Yeah, or pro-mother. But um, we're saying all of it matters and all of it matters to the Lord. Yeah, uh, well put. And one more uh, thing I would add, if you are out there uh, and at some point in your in your history, you've had an abortion, know that that God still loves you and can uh, redeem that and bring transformation. You can grieve that, but it's not, um, you know, uh, it's not the unforgivable sin. I guess I'll just put it that way. And sometimes. Uh, I know that it could feel that way. And we want to, again, remind us of God's grace and um, that, that Jesus went to the cross for things like mm, this. And so I want to point you to that. And Aubrey, uh, a really quick mention, uh, taking a big left turn. Uh, did you see this morning? Meatloaf passed away. I saw that. This is Maybe this is the third celebrity. I mean, we've been looking for that other celebrity death. And I mean, I hate to... That sounds so cheesy. I'm sorry. <laughs> so well, you said just that. That. <laughs> but um, that's so sad. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it might be a stretch to compare Meatloaf to Betty White or whatever. But yeah, yeah I, I, it was interesting. I heard a debate on the radio today as to like what he level, And there was younger guys on the radio going, I didn't even know Meatloaf. Loaf. And I'm like, didn't know Meatloaf. Come on. Like he's Come a little on. bit before our time. But, uh, you know, you think of Paradise by the Dashboard Light or I Do Anything for Love or these kind of songs. And uh, yeah, it, it, again, 
not to be too melancholy, Aubrey, but it does feel like even as we get a little bit older, these people who were older than us, but yeah. were like mainstream when we were right. younger, starting to get older, starting to pass away. Absolutely. And so Meatloaf passed away today. If you're not aware of any of his songs, today's the day to go to YouTube and go, who was Meatloaf? Because he was a showman. <laughs> yeah, he definitely was. He was a theatrical rock star for sure. That's right. We're off and running today on a Friday. Coming up next, Aubrey, uh, you and I have kids in the public school, and there is a great debate going on right now. What role should parents play, uh, not only in uh, determining what is taught in school, but even knowing what does transparency look like for parents and school systems uh, when it comes to curriculum and what our kids are learning? We're going to discuss that as parents next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, we both have three kids in the public schools. I have a senior in high school, an eighth grader, and a seventh grader. Remind us what you've got. I have a fourth grader, a sixth grader, and a freshman. Okay, so my my kids are a little bit ahead of yours, but we both have three kids going through the school system. And one of the things that has been a front burner issue of late uh, has been school curriculum. And I feel this. I think you feel this as well. And it's been a little bit muddied up by the conversation about critical race theory, right? That's what you're hearing a lot about, uh, especially in southern states, especially you're, you're hearing people wanting to determine curriculum. But it's kind of raised a bigger picture question. Uh, even beyond critical, the critical race theory and everything that's going on with that kind of falls under this. Uh, but the new kind of uh, conversation that I think gets at it at a bigger scale is uh, something that is being called curriculum transparency. Hmm. So let me read you the background here. Okay. Lawmakers in at least 12 states have introduced legis- legislation to require schools to post lists of all of their teaching materials online, including books, articles and videos. The governors of Arizona, Florida, and Iowa, who have previously raised concern about how teachers discuss racism's impact on politics and society, called for curriculum transparency laws in speeches to their legislatures last month. And so I'm reading this, and there's a cynical side of me, Aubrey, that's like, okay, uh, like – some of, here, I'll put it this way. Some of the conversation about racism and critical race theory and the kind of the fear mongering going on uh, feels over the top. To yeah, me. totally. But I'm going to give uh, the other side to what I think here as a parent. I most certainly want increased curriculum transparency. A hundred percent. And it's in fact, I, I was surprised that this is kind of a thing. Again, I understand some of the fringe conversations that are going on here. Uh, and this and that, but I I can't understand how anybody would argue against curriculum transparency right. in the public school system, where if I want to know what my kids are learning, I should be able at any point to know. It doesn't even mean I get to determine what my kids exactly. are learning. Yeah. But I should at least be able to know what my kids are learning and be able to make decisions as a parent then about whether I want my kids learning this or not this, whether I even want to pull my kid from the public school. But this idea that the school system can work in kind of 
rather than hand in hand with parents, but instead outside of parents kind of forming the worldview of our kids apart from any of our influence seems like craziness to me, Aubrey. But but you read the articles about this, quote unquote, curriculum transparency. Like, it seems like we're kind of fringe in our belief about this. More people seem to be saying, nope, that's the job of the educator. That's the job of the teacher. And I'm like, no, no, my job as a parent is to know exactly what my right. kids are learning at all times. What do you think about this? I was just, I mean, I think it sounds like you're feeling similarly as me. I was actually shocked this was even a controversy. Like, I I don't understand I I know there's fear of like parents protesting and then there's fear of censorship or what have you, but, or freedom of speech. But I, I don't think this is about that. Like parents should know what their kids are learning period. Yeah. And then, like you said, it doesn't mean parents play a part necessarily in should they or shouldn't they learn that thing. But then parents have a choice to say, you know what, I'm going to pull my kid out for that class and homeschool them during that one hour, or yeah. we're going to go online during that hour, or I'm going to send them to the private school, or I'm going to homeschool them all together. Or like, it, I, I guess I, it is baffling to me that we are in the fringe. Like, as parents, I feel like I have first and foremost responsibility to know what my kids are learning. Now, I am not their main educator. I've chosen to put my kids in public school, so the teachers are. But at the end of the day, as a parent, like I have the authority over my kids. That's and right. so I do have the right to know what's going on. Now, I, I'm i with you. I think the fear-mongering over critical race theory is ridiculous. I think this – I can see why there's some – um uh, frustration or pushback on the side of the schools, especially because parents have gone overboard with things that they don't know. So I can understand. At the same time, it just feels like, no, just put it online. Here's what I'm teaching your kids. Done and done. Like, you don't need to have a comment section on it, but like, just put it out there. That's right. Uh, so some of the fear, this is state rep Maggie Nuremberg. Uh, she says that this is, it ties the hands of educators, she said. This is absolutely just an easy tool to censor anything controversial. So there you get kind of this. I tend to agree with state rep uh, Doug Ritchie, a Republican who sponsored the Missouri bill, who said that if schools are, quote, doing things right, they shouldn't have anything to fear from this legislation. He said yeah. it's not to blow up. Here's the line that I really appreciated. It's not to blow apart public education. It is about trust. Hmm. And so I, I don't know. I just think um, here's another one. President of the American Federation of Teachers said good schools and good sc school districts have always had curriculum transparency, including extensive two way communication between parents and educators on what we are teaching uh, and how to support our kids. And so um, now, Aubrey, I would say, and I think you would say the same, our our history with my teachers that my kids have had is complete transparency. Yeah. Uh, like we can know what everything in, in, uh, and I guess I want to end it this way. Uh, you mentioned something that I think is really important. We as parents are the number one educators of our children. Right. That we are the number one. And uh, sadly, I think a lot of times we as parents uh, abdicate that responsibility. Mm. And we say, oh, nope, it's on the school to educate my kids. It's on the church and the youth group and all of this to yeah. disciple my kids. And it's on me to make sure that they get to school and get to church and this and that. Ultimately, 
your children's education, your children's worldview, your children's discipleship is primarily on you as the parent. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, Aubrey, when I say that, is that a do you agree with that? And B, does that feel uh, like an opportunity or a burden? How does that come off? No, I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with that. That's just good stewardship. And the fact that the Lord has given us our kids on purpose. Now, I don't This is where I'm like, that means you have the right then as your child's parent to choose, like, I'm going to have public school educators or private school educators, whoever, be the ones in charge of my kids, like school education. Like, that's part of what it means that you're in charge, that you have the onus, the agency to make the best decision for your kids. Mm -hmm. But you have to make that decision with knowledge, with understanding what they're learning. So I, I do think a lot of parents have abdicated that role spiritually. I think they've abdicated that role in other ways. They want to be their kids like best friends instead of their parents. And I understand that tendency. I want to be close with my kids. But at the end of the day, like our role is to protect, is to guide, is to lead, is to educate in partnership with our community. It's not, you know, we don't have, yeah, it takes a village. Um, But yeah, I think we have to remember that the Lord has given us that position on purpose to lead our kids um, in a way that impacts his kingdom and impacts yeah. them. Yeah, it's well put. I it, Apparently, if you read this article, this is going to be a hot button topic coming forward. And it, it strikes me as crazy. Uh, but yes, you as parents, that, the biggest thing we want you to hear today is take up the mantle of leadership in your kid's life. Uh, make sure you're engaged in their education, in their discipleship, and uh, and use the schools and the churches and stuff as tools to to help you. Well, coming up next, The article at The Atlantic is simply titled this, COVID Parenting Has Passed the Point of Absurdity. (laughs) That'll be a good one. Just that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. I just saw this headline and laughed and cried and everything all at once. This was at The Atlantic. Just says this, COVID parenting has passed the point of absurdity. (laughs) You and I, we've said this a couple of times, even in today's show, we both have three kids, different, not together. We have two different families. Each of us have three kids. I have a senior in high school, an eighth grader and a seventh grader. Your kids are a little bit younger, but kind of along that same Uh, path there. And when I read the word, I think that word absurdity is a wonderful way to describe what COVID parenting feels right now. And I think the real struggle for me, I'll speak personally right now, Aubrey, uh, is there was this stretch early on in COVID in the pandemic where we thought to ourselves, you know what? Uh, At least this absurdity will be short lived. Yes. Uh, And it will go away. And now I think the real draining part right now is it doesn't feel that way anymore. Instead, it feels like the new normal, even in states that aren't like Illinois. Right. Like I was talking to a buddy in Tennessee who uh, their state is you barely know that COVID existed. Right. Like that's kind of how they exist. But things for parents have still changed. Right. The way schools function, the way churches function there. They have not nearly changed the way it's changed up here. Uh, but even for them, it's different. And so, uh, Aubrey, how are you navigating? I guess I'd like to know two things. How are you navigating the quote unquote absurdity? Yeah. Uh, and what are the things that you, um, uh, you are most sad about that has changed as a, for our kids, as a parent, just kind of that dynamic? What, what is, what do you most grieve that we've lost over the last two years? 
Yeah, I love this article at The Atlantic that you mentioned because it starts out with the story of a group of moms who literally like planned an evening out just to go outside and scream. Like literally they just wanted to be together to vent and yell in the middle of January outside uh, because it does sort of feel that way. I, you know, I think the difficult part has been just what you said, Brian, that I think it's it's like the end of the pandemic is sort of this dangling carrot in front of us. Mm-hmm. And so you keep kind of feeling like it'll be OK. We'll get there. It'll be OK. We'll get there. And we are getting there. Like, I I mean, I still do believe that. <laughs> yes. Right. But then it's like right now my whole family has COVID. Omicron is everywhere. And, you know, you can't get enough COVID tests at Walgreens to find out are you still um, contagious or not. You can't even get the meds you need because there's a long line of queue for people who need the uh, COVID antibodies. And then school, just kids feeling like they're behind in school. I've had kids on remote learning all week. like, it, And it's just overwhelming. And now I'm so grateful. like You and I can do this show remotely. Right. But if we couldn't, that means I would have been out all week we would have had to figure out how to handle that. You would have had to carry that weight of this show. We would have had to figure out my kids, who's going to take care. I mean, you know, it's just like there's so many things that it uh, yeah, yeah. it just keeps building and building and building. And I tend to trust God and like genuinely do okay. I will say this past week of just not feeling good and then having my kids be sick as well. It's definitely started to get draining. Like, okay, Lord, when is this going to end? When are we going to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Are there more variants coming? Or is this finally like we're reaching the fever pitch and we're going to move forward? Um, So I I guess I would say it is good and probably healthy for us to lament and grieve and complain about this long two years, because I think that's that helps us grieve and move forward, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think what I miss the most, I was thinking about this when I read, uh, talk about this article. I think what I miss the most about uh, just life in general, like how I related to my kids and how our family function is, uh, I think I miss most the spontaneity, the mm-hmm. the ability to just go at the spur of the moment, hey, let's go do this. Yeah. Because now when you think of it, you can still go do these things, but you have to think to yourself, is it open? Uh, do I have to wear a mask? Uh, is that friends' parents okay with them right. doing this? Yeah. There, there are all these layers, it feels like, to every decision, right? So my, my son is just playing Park District basketball, right? Just for fun. Just yeah. He's got his first game this weekend. Fun. And my dad texted me, hey, can we come? And I, my first question was, I don't know. Right. Because all these park districts have rules, not just yep. with masks, but who can come, yep. who can't come. And then after those games, we'd always go out to lunch or whatever. And now it's like, is that Can even we? worth it? Because now know. we have to be there. And, the, and so I've, I, I miss, I grieve the loss of just kind of spontaneity mm. and ca- uh, carefreeness. Like, yeah. well, of course we're going to go to that game and right. we're just going to get like right now I would go to a bulls game in a heartbeat with yeah. my kids and this and that, but it's not as carefree as it was right. like before. It was like, you just go and you scream and you hug everything. You're like going crazy. And now you're like, do we have to wear a mask? Do I have to show a car? It, it's there's a carefreeness to it, I think, that I miss and I grieve. So, Aubrey, let's spin this kind of more positive and proactive. What do you do with it? What do what do parents who are discouraged uh, over the plight of what parenting has become in the midst of all of this? Uh, 
you know, they were like, oh, things are starting to feel normal. Now Omicron. And then there's, right. what's the next variant that's going to hit? And how long are my kids going to have to do this? And they're just weighed down by it. Or they just want to go out with a group of friends and scream. Yeah. What do we, what do we offer to those parents? What do, what, what should they do? What, what brings some hope in all of this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I almost feel like this is a hard question for me to answer. So weary from COVID myself. Currently. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I do. I do think the hope is that this will end. And the reality is we may never go back to normal, but, Mm -hmm. you know, we can learn resilience and what it means to have a new normal. And I will say, going back to the early days of COVID, there were some fun, um, fun family moments that only happened because of COVID, like game nights and, and having fun together and getting creative. And I know some of us are out of creative energy, but to kind of hearken back to some of those things, even in these days, like mm-hmm. how can you have a fun family weekend at home this weekend? Can you order your favorite food or make a new meal or I, I don't know, play a family game you haven't played in a while and bring back some of those sweet times. And then tr- at the end of the day, I mean, this is an act of trust. Like, do we trust that God has our best in mind? Do we trust that God is overseeing all of this? And do we trust that a better day is going to come? We This is really a, a moment to lean into our our resilience in mm-hmm. Christ. And we know that we've been told we'll face trials. These are trials. Okay, mm-hmm. we're in it. So in the middle of it now, can we trust that the Lord is shaping us into Christ-likeness as we continue to surrender all of these feelings to him? Yeah, that's well put. I think... Uh, also, as parents, it, it can't just be our kids are going to mirror kind of our attitudes yeah. here. And so yeah. if it's only about loss and I'm only co- ever complaining about having to wear a mask or what we can't do or this, that, that's going to be the posture that our children take. Yeah. Right. They're going to look at us and go, oh, OK, this is all lost. As opposed to, like you said, what are the things we can do? What are the what are the ways I can have positive positive attitude? And quite frankly, everything's open right now. It just yeah. takes a little bit more to do them. But being willing to do that a little bit more, uh, I think, will help our kids. Just love that wording. The absurdity of COVID parenting pitch past the point of absurdity. A good article over there at The Atlantic. Coming up next, senior news editor for Christianity Today. Uh, Her name is Kate Shelnut. She's going to come join us to talk about, amongst other things, Aubrey, some really, really good news for us who preach sermons on a regular basis. We're going to talk to Kate about that and many other things next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey, one of our favorite guests, somebody that we like to have on on a regular basis, senior news editor over at Christianity Today, joining us right now, Kate Shelnut. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Thanks for spending some time with us. All right. Uh, wanted to talk about two articles of yours that recently came out in Christianity Today uh, that Aubrey and I have talked about during the week, but would love to just dive into them. And one of them, simply the headline uh is is like music into Aubrey and I as pastors here. <laughs> like we read this, we're like, yes, here, let me just read the headline. Nine out of 10 evangelicals don't think sermons are too long. And uh, as pastors who regularly preach, uh, you know, you always are worried about that. Like, how do I keep my attention? We need to make these like TED Talks. We need to make them short or whatever else it might be. So I personally was kind of surprised by that. 
Uh, Kate, will you unpack some of that and help us understand uh, that statistic? And were you surprised by it? Sure. So this is a a statistic that came from uh, the congregational scorecard from Gray Matter Research. So they surveyed evangelicals who meet kind of all the evangelical beliefs. Um, And they found that 85% of evangelicals say, I would make no changes to the length of my um, of my pastor's sermon. And then the rest are kind of split before between if they want shorter or longer. So the big takeaway is that even though this is something maybe pastors have in the back of their mind, or there's a stereotype or a punchline even about, you know, pastors being boring and draining on and, um, and people, you know, uh, getting impatient with with how long sermons are. It's not really the case for evangelicals who go to church at least somewhat, at least sometimes. Um, and so I think that the, the takeaway here is that some of the things that um, pastors hear as criticism, whether it's this about sermon length, or they also ask things about like um, the style of worship or how often giving is brought up, that pastors are used to hearing criticism about them. But it's one of those things where, you know, the, the critical voice really outshines the many um, when we look at the numbers in terms of how many people are happy really with with how their churches are run. Mm. That is, that's, yeah, that's good news, as Brian said for us, <laughs> Pastor. I don't need to change a thing, is what I mean. Um, Kate, something else you, you wrote about speaking of church leaders is that church leaders are still waiting for volunteers to come back. And I would say, just anecdotally at our church renewal church, we could say that's very true. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that article for us a little bit? Sure. So, this was a survey um, that Gallup had done, and it was two parts. And one part they did was all about giving. And we've written a ton about giving, but basically they said a lot of nonprofits and churches, their giving levels have rebounded. But what hasn't rebounded is the rate of volunteering. Um, So people are um, maybe a little bit better off financially than they they had been at, at different points in the pandemic, but they're not quite better off that they're signing up, um, for the same kinds of things that they were doing before the pandemic, whether that's volunteering with a ministry like a, like a food bank or a homeless shelter, or even just signing up to be the Sunday school teacher, mm-hmm. um, run sound at worship. We know at churches, all the things that rely on volunteers. Um, one reason I wanted to write this story is because I really feel the crunch of this at my own church um, and not just, okay, getting people to sign up. But then when there are people willing to sign up even week after week, what happens when one of those um, families has a kid in school that gets COVID or um, in a network of churches where we are close? Well, if, if we hung out with that family, are we off the schedule too? And so it does feel like this tumbling of, of, of blocks, like a house of cards or whatever, yeah. when one volunteer pulls out um, and we don't have that backlog of, oh, well, we'll just call Mrs. Smith or whatever, because um, fewer people are back in church. And um, and some of it is because of the risks of knowing people are more vulnerable still and, and are having to wait for the sake of their health. And some of it is just getting out of the habit, right? Of I got used to um, just watching virtually, or I got used to just coming and leaving when when churches were maybe a little more scaled back. So as they're trying to bring back programming, people just aren't in the habit the same way as they were to um, to signing up and serving. Yeah. And as you did your research and kind of talked to people on this, Kate, I'm curious, what about the pastors you talked to? Is this 
uh, highly discouraging for them? Or is this like, hey, church is just different now. I have to figure it out. Uh, because as Aubrey said, we're both pastors and we're dealing with this exact thing. Our, our volunteers coming back or people coming back in general, like uh, and dealing with all this. What what were you hearing from the leaders uh, who are having to try to figure this out as some of their volunteers aren't coming back? Well, one of the people I talked to was Chuck Peters, who leads kids ministry at Lifeway. And we all know kids ministry is one of those where you do need, um, you know, bodies to help people to help. And he was actually at a conference with hundreds of other kids ministry pastors. And I was kind of asking, is everybody gloom and doom about this? Is everyone feeling overwhelmed? And I think that because we keep feeling like we see a turning point and, um, in the pandemic and kind of a, a normalcy at the horizon that there really is an attitude, um, thankfully from pastors and leaders of like, this isn't the forever and wanting to kind of build back, uh, better and, and do things better. But I think on the other side, as a, as a church member, it can be hard to see like, oh, well, when are we going to have all the people that we need, or are we really going to be able to do that? But I, I do think from leaders that they're trying to keep a sense of optimism that even if people aren't back now, that they will be back um, and that this is an opportunity to to reevaluate, okay, how are we training leaders? How yeah. are we involving them? Um, how are we telling them that we value them? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, maybe people who have fallen away. I think there are people who needed, who were ready to retire, just like mm-hmm. in jobs and other things like um, that this, this could be a, uh, ending of a chapter for someone in, in a certain volunteer role who's been the, you know, the hospitality person forever. Maybe it's time for a, you know changing of the guard in your church, um, and, and let them have a, have a break and bring somebody new in. Mm-hmm. And Kate, just just thinking about church in the future, and and I guess I'm asking you to guess a little bit based on some of the research you're doing at Christianity Today, but. Um, you know, things like virtual church. Do mm-hmm. you see trends? Like, can you foresee trends about how the church is going to change because of the COVID pandemic, like looking into the future? Yeah, I think virtual church and then even beyond that, like church in the metaverse are like two of my biggest areas of curiosity going into 2022 and things that um, I hope we'll be able to report on kind of in more depth and ask more thoughtful questions. But Right now, there are a lot of churches who have seen success with virtual church, right? Who, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, saw numbers they'd never seen before on their live stream. And so there are some whose philosophy is, if we're reaching more people this way, then let's do it. Let's keep leaning into it. Um, one kind of extreme example is we saw a couple weeks ago, the Potter's House campus in Denver had sold their building and will be virtual services only. Um, but I actually don't think that that'll be the trend for most. I do think a number of people, and there are pastors who I've talked to who said, the moment that it's available to us and okay for our community, we're going to shut down live streaming altogether mm-hmm. because we want people to value being here and being together. And we really believe like theologically, um, that the church has to exist in person. There will be exceptions for people who are sick and we will send recordings to them. But in terms of offering a live stream front to back every day, um, that communicates something different about what we believe about church. So I think we'll see maybe both ways. Some people really leaning into it and other people really 
saying, no, for us to, to get back to what we want, we're going to actually have to shut that down and train people to get back in the pews. Yeah, I think I think you're going to have some more articles to write at Christianity Today about how the church is changing going forward. Uh, it certainly feels like that in the next year, coming years and stuff. Again, Kate Shelnut is the senior news editor for Christianity Today. You can check out Kate's articles at Christianity Today. In fact, well, the one we didn't get to, she is editing one about abortion. This is the March for Life Today, Sanctity of Life Sunday coming up, uh, January being uh, Sanctity of Life Month. Uh, so I'd encourage you to go check those out at Christianity Today. You can also connect with Kate on Twitter at Kate Shelnut. That's at Kate Shelnut. Kate, we always appreciate your time and your work at Christianity Today. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks, guys. Till next time. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. It's Friday, and if it's Friday, one of our favorite things to do on a Friday is the top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right, Aubrey. This one is is love themed, not because it's uh, Valentine's Day coming up, not because, it, but because tomorrow is my anniversary, my wedding anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary, happy anniversary. So uh, we're not going to do top five things I love about my wife because you would have you would struggle with that list, right? But <laughs> uh, you came up with a good one: top five romantic comedies. Top five rom-com movies, Aubrey, right in your wheelhouse. This is a dream list for me. (laughs) And so it's wonderful that we can do it in honor of your anniversary. So I am so, so excited. Let me give uh, some ground rules to how you and I did this. Because you could, it's hard to define define a romantic comedy. Yeah. And so here's what we use. There is a list at Rotten Tomatoes. Of the 200 best rom-coms. And we kind of agreed that our, we will take them from that list. Okay. So, you know, I could have, I could have argued that high school musical is a romantic comedy. Right. That's fair. That's but fair. It is not on the list. So I kept it off. So, uh, we are going to keep to that. If you want to argue that one of them that we say is not a romantic comedy, go argue with Rotten Tomatoes yeah, is what go. I would say. So, and I, let me just say one more clarification too. There are a lot of romantic movies out there. And that's right. Again, we narrowed it down specifically to rom com. So it needed to have yes. that comedy element. So like I generally would have put perhaps a dramatic Jane. Austen movie on this mm-hmm. list. We didn't do that for that reason. And I've never had more honorable mentions, so I'm going to just read them later and not even talk about okay, them. Okay, sounds let's good. Go, okay. Uh, you go first. Let's start with number five. Okay, number five. I'm going to do the classic rom-com that started it all when Harry met Sally. I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely. And it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. 
I mean, in some ways that did start it all. Didn't yeah, it? yeah. In yeah. some ways. Okay, that's a good one. I actually felt like I needed to put that on my list and realized I don't know the last time I saw that. Okay, movie. Like, fair. I don't know if I could tell you much about it, so I kept it off. Number five for me, Aubrey, is somewhat nostalgic to like my kid's childhood. Okay. Uh, and I wonder with boys if you ever saw this movie, but there was a movie called Enchanted. Oh, I love that movie. I Not love to be confused with Ella Enchanted. Yes. It's just Enchanted. And I love that movie when the yeah. kids have it on. And uh, so when I saw that on the list, I grabbed that one for number five. Yeah, that's actually an honorable mention of mine. I think that okay. is a fantastic movie. Okay, my number four is a movie that I think may have showed up on, on my Christmas movie list as well. Mm. But this is a rom-com called The Holiday, which you've never seen, right? Never seen it. You never have got it. to watch that for your anniversary. It is so good. It's got Jude Law and Jack Black and Cameron Diaz and Kate Winslet. All-star cast. Great story. I love it. Uh, I will not watch that with this weekend because, as I've told you before, I refuse to do Christmas stuff outside of the Christmas season. Well, it's not really a Christmas movie. It's like, a I, rom-com, and there just happens to be some holiday things that happen in it. Aubrey, you put that in your top five Christmas okay, movie list. So right. uh, so for the integrity of the of the segment, we need that to be a Christmas movie. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, all right. you're missing out. You're missing out. Number four. And I will caveat this to say I would prefer much prefer to watch the cleaned up TBS TNT version oh, of this movie. Oh, interesting. What are you uh, about to say? Be, be careful if you're ever going to show this one to your kids. Uh, but anyway, it is on the list, and it always makes me laugh. Wedding Crashers. Oh, I haven't seen that one in a long time. Okay. Yes. Be careful where you get it from is all that I will say pastorally. Gotcha. Okay. okay, okay. Uh, but yes, Owen Wilson and uh, Vince Vaughn. Hilarious movie. Okay. Hilarious. I didn't I didn't know that was considered a rom-com. I'm going to have to rewatch that. Okay. My number three. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. Bridget Jones Diary. Okay. I almost put that on there. Do you like the sequels too? I love the sequels. Anytime somebody asks like, what are the best trilogies out there? And people are putting all these like dramatic trilogies. I'm like, nope. Bridget Jones trilogy. (laughs) Best movies ever. Yep. I love them all. I love them all. All right. Number three, this is going to mix my love of the rom-com. And by the way, I do love a rom-com, by the way. I know. I know this about you. Yes. uh, I, I, this is, this combines my love of rom-com with my love of sports. Uh, particularly baseball, and oh. I'm going to go back to Bull Durham. Oh, is that a rom com? It's I did I'm not sure. See, this is where it gets stretched a little bit, but that was on the Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, okay. two hundred best rom com list. Okay, uh, so I grabbed it. Bull Durham, Kevin Costner. Uh, you know he's he's the minor league pit, the minor league catcher. It's a wonderful movie. So Bull Durham. Bull Durham. Okay. All right. That feels very you. I feel like that's a very you movie to add. Okay. My number two is another one of my favorites. I would say three, two, one. It was hard to kind of narrow these down, but it's a newer rom-com. Okay. And I'm going to go with Crazy Rich Asians. I Mm. love that movie. I've probably watched it five times and it never gets old. My my wife and or daughters have said that's a good movie. I've never seen it. but Yeah, it's uh, a great one. All right. My number two, and this is... Uh, a, I love this movie, but this is also in or, in honor of my wife, with whom I I'm ha- celebrating an anniversary this weekend. Okay, uh, she really introduced me to this movie because her family loves this movie. Uh, so at number two for me is The Princess Bride. As you wish was all he ever said. Farm boy, fill these with water, please. 
as you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. So when I got married uh, into Carrie's family, when I entered into her family, when we were dating, there was like three, no, there were two movies that they were just obsessed with. (laughs) One was The Princess Bride, uh, and the other is The Three Amigos. Oh, that's and so funny. Isn't it funny? Yeah, yes. that's so, hilarious. Uh, I'm not sure I'd ever seen Princess Bride before that, even though it had been out for a while. Wow. But once you see The Princess Bride, yeah. it is a wonderful. It's a great one. It's a great one. All right. Are we ready for our number one or are we doing nope. honorable mentions first? Give me your list of honorable okay, mentions. Okay, I'm just going to list them quickly. All right. Enchanted. Mm-hmm. Sleepless in Seattle. Of course. Wimbledon. And then actually, this is another Netflix trilogy that I have grown to love to all the boys I've loved before. They are just the cutest rom-coms ever. Kind of a re reboot of rom-coms. I love them. What's it called? To All the Boys I've Loved Before. And there's part one, two, and three. All right. All right. All right. Here's my list of uh, my way too long honorable mention list, but ones I felt like had to be mentioned. Uh, Groundhog Day. Okay. Is that a rom-com? It's on the list. Okay. Uh, Say Anything from oh, the 80s. I love that movie. Uh, Dave. I love the movie Dave. That's a yeah, great movie. Yeah, that's a good one. A movie my family just watched the other day, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh, yeah. That's fun. Uh, Nodding Hill. Oh, that's a good one. Three more. The Wedding Singer, Adam Sandler. Oh, yeah. Drew that's Barrymore. cute. Yeah. Uh, another Kevin Costner being Tin Cup. Oh, I didn't like that movie. Oh, I like that movie. And Aubrey, and maybe this will be, I have a feeling this could show up at your number one. I am not sure. But uh, you can't have a rom-com list without Pretty Woman. Oh, Pretty Woman. Yeah, I I like that one, but that is not on my list. Okay, then we are up to Aubrey's number one rom-com is... Number one rom-com is You've Got Mail, starring those rom-com actors themselves, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. I love that movie. If I hadn't been Fox Books and you hadn't been the shop around the corner, and you and I had just met... I know. Yeah. Yeah. I would have asked for your number. And I wouldn't have been able to wait 24 hours before calling you up and saying, hey, how about... Oh, how about some coffee or, you know, drinks or dinner or a movie? For as long as we both shall live. I actually really like that movie as well. It is odd that it's essentially Sleepless in Seattle on email. Same actor, <laughs> same actress. Right. Uh, it came out like five years later, and it's like the same plot, except now we're doing this crazy new thing called email. It's actually a remake of Little Shop Around the Corner, or The Shop Around the Corner, I think is what it's oh, called, okay. which is a very old, like, Spencer Tracy um Catherine Hepburn. I might be saying the wrong actors, but it's a very old movie. It's a remake of that movie. I would like to go back and watch that simply for how new email was. I know, right? It still had the dial-up sound at that time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that is a good one. Good one there. Uh, Number one, and this will also combine my love of rom-coms and sports. It was on the list. I am going to go with Jerry Maguire. We live in a cynical world. A cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. I love 
You complete me. And I just had... Shut up. Just shut up. You had me at hello. I love that movie. Show me the money. Yes. Uh, that's where the famous line, you complete me. Comes. Oh, gosh, I forgot about that. Uh, yep, all of us, classic. all of us have used in sermons or premarital counseling yep. going, don't expect your spouse that to complete you. That is not accurate. Jerry Maguire says you complete me, but we believe Jesus completes <laughs> it, right? Like that's the move right there. So those are in honor of my anniversary. Those are the top five rom-coms. We'd love to hear what you think. Go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, we are going to end the show with some good news, some heartwarming stories as we close out the week here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a Friday. And Aubrey, we often like to end our shows, but especially our weeks just putting a smile on people's faces, a heartwarming story. And boy, did we find one for today. Uh, this was on CBS, uh, I think Sunday morning, in one of their morning shows. I think it was over the weekend. Uh, and it's the story of uh, Gene and Steve, a couple that dated in college. Things went badly. And then this reuniting, this uh, reuniting of a couple. So we thought, Let's play the whole thing. It's like two and a half minutes. And I promise you, when you're done with it, you're going to have a smile on your face. So let's listen to their story. For most of her adult life, 68-year-old Jean Gustafson has suffered from chronic regret. Can't turn back the clock. I wish I could. Would you do anything different? Yes, I would have married him. I would have married him. What Jean so regrets is breaking up with her college sweetheart. So this was the spring of 72. A guy she met in the German club at Loyola University in Chicago. This is Steve and I in the back here. Gene says he would have made the perfect husband. A lot of memories here. If only he'd been white. My mother was absolutely livid. I mean, What did she say? What didn't she say? How could I disgrace the family? It was not pretty. Partly because of those pressures, Gene broke up with Steve Watts and never saw him again. Until a few months ago, when she tracked him down at this Chicago nursing home. What I found was sort of a broken man. Like Gene, Steve was divorced with no kids. But life for him had been much harder. He'd fallen on terrible times. He was homeless, had two strokes, and was almost unrecognizable the day Gene walked back into his life. But he's still the wonderful, gorgeous man that I knew. Did all those feelings come rushing back? Yes, for both of us. And so, with her mother no longer in the way, Jean made arrangements to move Steve from the nursing home to her home in Portland, Oregon. Sleeping. I feel terribly lucky that I get a second chance. Steve? Steve's health issues have left him bedridden, but his mind is sharp and his heart young. In fact, if you listen closely, you can still hear his devotion unwavering after all these years. I always love to. Race drove its wedge and love wormed its way back. And their story isn't over, I don't think. Has he proposed? 
I'm not at liberty to say. Hypothetically, if he did propose, what would your answer be? Hypothetically, yes. Sounds like a follow-up. Should I book a ticket? Hypothetically, yes. <laughs> I mean, Aubrey, I think you're you're crying through I your mean, COVID sniffles right now. I, I know it's my COVID sniffles and my emotional sniffles. Like fifty years later, they're reunited, and she's caring for him, and she went and rescued him. And I mean, it is just the fact that their love lasted that whole time, and the fact that it was just like the pain of racism that kept them yeah. apart and kept them from the joy of of love and even probably of having children. I mean, you know, there's so much pain in it, but what a beautiful story that they're reconnected after all this time. I mean, that's the tragic nature of the story, right? It seems like they were genuinely in love and uh, the pressures around them, particularly as she says from her mom, uh, were just too much to bear. And, you know, we we did our top five rom-coms a segment ago, but this is like a rom-com movie, but it didn't end back then the way that it would end in the movies. Right. In the movies, uh, this has like a West Side Story feel to it. Right. Like we're going to we're going to power through uh, and uh, it doesn't have that. And so you could hear I, I guess one thing I was really struck by, Aubrey, was you can hear the regret in Jean's voice. Like she immediately starts crying. Yes. She immediately like there was a deep regret. And um, like this is a happy story in the end, but it's certainly a tragic story for the vast majority of their lives. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to me how those emotions are still so strong after that many years. And and even though like even as she's being interviewed, he's there in her bedroom and she's taking care of him um, since he's bedridden that pain of the years that they lost and the pain of I'm sure so much regret was just so at the surface. Like it, that was incredible to me that, uh, you know, how present the pain still was, but I love the way that this worked out. I think it's so beautiful that she's loving and serving him even as he's sick and they're still expressing their love for one another. And maybe they're hinting at a marriage, you know, those kinds of things are so beautiful, but certainly, you know, it is a, it is a love uh, sprinkled with a lot of heartache. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of heartache. And so uh, it does make you sad. You're just like, Oh, that's so hard. But Aubrey, let's end this way. Uh, We love has been a theme here. It's my anniversary this weekend. It was your and Kevin's anniversary, maybe two weeks ago or so. Uh, What do we learn from a story like this? Uh, kind of about the nature of love, like the um, uh, just kind of the the nature of like that that deep love that we read about in scripture. Yeah, I mean, I I would love to hear you talk about you know years of being married and and what you've learned, Brian. But I I would say that um, you know everything falls away, but love does endure. And I think the reality is is this is more than just emotional feelings they had mm-hmm. for one another. Like mm-hmm. really, I think she chose him and he chose her for years and years and years and years. And, and that's the beauty of love that you can stay faithful to somebody, even in your soul by choosing them again and again and again and again and again. And even as the feelings come and go, um, a love that lasts is a love that chooses to last and so I bet there were years that they didn't think about each other. I bet there were times that they moved on, but ultimately they kept coming back to the choice of that other person. And I, right. I think that's the beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, like we said, we're, we're heading to 22 years of marriage tomorrow. And I think that you, you hit something really 
important. Like when I think of our wedding day and when I think of the first months or years of our marriage, it's so carefree, right? Yeah. Like it truly is kind of that uh, that honeymoon period. But but marriage, like you said, eventually becomes a daily choice to uh, to live out the vows that I've made and to love this person in good, a ton of good, right? Yep. A ton of laughs, a ton of good, but there are bads. There Absolutely. are struggles. Yeah. And, and it, there never is in that, for, you know, the beginning of marriage, but, but their life beats down and, and it becomes difficult yeah. and there becomes illness. There becomes physical, uh, uh, struggles. There become, you know, kids add something, but it's this idea of going, uh, I choose you again today. Yeah. And I choose you again today. And and that kind of and then this is what's crazy about it, Aubrey. And I know we talked about this at your anniversary, too, is that 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 is what adds the depth to our marriages. That's yes. what adds the depth. It's not the uh, all the flowers and the honeymoon right. and all this stuff. It's the uh, you know what? I'm sticking with you. You're no matter what I'm in this with you in all of the goods, but also in those bads that come along the way. And I'm yeah. here with you. And, and this story that we just heard is just such a, a, an example of that. She went and found him and he is the bedridden, yes. right? Like he is not who he was. And she's like, but, but I love you Yes, and I'm going to come. And so, uh, I think that's the love we see in scripture. Uh, and I think that's the love that causes a marriage to last. Because yeah. here's the deal. We have well, you and I did a story a couple months ago about the number one uh, fastest growing demographic for divorces are people who've been married 25 years and over. Right, right. And that's what it is. And so I would encourage people out there, uh, continue to choose your spouse each day and invest in that relationship and go, nope, and we're going to laugh. We're going to cry. We're going to struggle. We're going to celebrate. Uh, but I'm with you and, and with you only. So uh, that's where I'm going, going out to dinner with my wife tomorrow. So uh, oh, looking forward to it. Thank you very much. And Aubrey, I hope that you feel a lot better oh, when we, when we get together again to on Monday. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And we're glad that you joined us all week. We are going to be back again on Monday from 4 until 6 p.m. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.